0: To you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter fifty-three, Isaiah chapter fifty-three. We're taking a break for the next four weeks from the Gospel of John, and perhaps even beyond that, there are some um, some matters about the church that uh, I'd like to address at the beginning of the year and talk about kind of the pillars of our church uh, as we start a new year. But for now, we're in the Advent season and starting a week late. Um, Thank you, by the way, for allowing Amber and our family to be away for Thanksgiving. Uh, But uh, we're going to go even a week late uh, beyond uh, uh, Christmas uh, Day. So on the 27th, you're still going to get an Advent message. And that's okay, because I say it is. Um, But um, uh, you, you may wonder this morning, why Isaiah chapter 53? Why this? And Uh, We're going to obviously unpack this uh, together, uh, but we're going to look this morning at this passage to direct our focus to the Son of God, eternally God, come in the flesh for the glory of God and the salvation of men who repent and believe in His perfect life, death, and resurrection as the only means by which uh, we are made right or reconciled to God And it's interesting to think about Isaiah chapter 53 in light of what we've been studying even in the Gospel of John. So much of what John references, in fact, he actually references Isaiah chapter 53 and and John chapter 12. Uh, which we have not made it to, uh, but but there's so much of Isaiah 53 really in the rest of Scripture. We think about um, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who Philip interacts with, and what is he reading but in God's providence, Isaiah chapter 53. And what does Philip say to him when he says, when the eunuch asks, um, Sir, of whom does this speak? Is this the prophet or someone else? And it says in um, Luke, tells us there in Acts, Uh, he says um, he began to preach Jesus to him. And we understand that Isaiah 53 is such an important messianic passage. And from the perspective of the Old Testament people of God who would have read this, uh, they would have been looking forward to uh, the one that Isaiah 53 and even part of Isaiah 52 speaks of. Though many did not, but we remember that there is a a remnant who believes in the coming of messiah but but this picture of messiah that's given in Isaiah chapter 53 is so different than the one that is thought of when Jesus comes on the scene but looking back from a new testament perspective and seeing this fulfilled uh, we understand how this fits into the season of advent that we find ourselves in uh, this morning because it speaks of the advent it speaks of the incarnation of messiah who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would uh, join me, uh, well, let's read Isaiah 53 first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in together. Just follow along, if you will. Isaiah chapter 53, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And we had our New Testament reading, which, of course, 1 Peter 2 there. Peter references, we hear, at the end of that chapter, even part of Isaiah 53. And now we'll read this as our Old Testament reading. Follow along as I read aloud. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah wrote, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt He shall see his seed, his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a joyful passage this morning. I feel like we could just burst forth in song again after that. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning as we look to this passage written so many thousands of years ago that still speaks so precisely of you, Lord Jesus, and of your mission, and of your incarnation, and of your life and death, and of your resurrection. May we indeed remember the reason for the season this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a Christian, we often use that phrase or we've heard that phrase kind of tossed around. It feels a bit maybe even cheesy now to say it. Remember the reason for the season or he is the reason for the season. And when we think of that, we often think about a baby in a manger, which is certainly true. And we must think about uh, when we talk about Advent or the incarnation or the birth of Christ, we must think about that aspect of it because he indeed was born of a virgin We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But we must seek to grasp and apply the full and final reason for the incarnation of Jesus as a means of worshiping the holy and triune God who is infinite in his infinite wisdom and in his grace and mercy plan that the eternal Son of glory would be a substitute for those who do not deserve grace and mercy, but deserve the wrath of the Father, Son, and Spirit for rebellion, against god's holiness it is as paul writes in philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 christ jesus though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a a thing to be grasped or, or a thing to be paraded around but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and the idea there in emptying himself is that he humbled himself and did not um make much of a reputation about himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is, which is a, a shameful death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the focus is upon what he came to do and what he sacrificed in order to do it. And it is for this reason that God has exalted him. And it is for this reason that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And notice it is to the glory of God the Father. There is this mutual exaltation of which we speak of often. It's not wrong at all for us to celebrate his coming. And we ought to. But we look Uh, From the manger into the future to the cross and to the resurrection. The reason ultimately for the glory of the Trinity in their plan in the incarnation. Here's the main point this morning. It's written for you there on the back of your worship folder. If you're joining us uh, via the live stream, you should have received an email with these notes celebrating the come of Je- coming of jesus should not center around his birth and again we're not saying there's anything wrong with that but it's not centered upon that but the mission which necessitated his birth we want to see this morning four aspects of the mission of the suffering servant as the one who is named in isaiah 53 is called four aspects of the mission of the suffering servant. The first is this. Number one, he was not esteemed. He was not esteemed. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Isaiah Isaiah begins with a question that takes us to the previous chapter in Isaiah. Look specifically at chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Really, this should be a part of the passage as well. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And we pause for a moment and think of, 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 of Psalm 2, where the kings of the nations are uh, uh, laughing and, and, or, 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 or conspiring together, rather, uh, to say, how can we cast off the chains of the Uh, Of God and his anointed one. And uh, by the end of Psalm 2. The psalmist is saying. Kings you better shut your mouths. Because he will destroy you. You need to kiss the son. Lest he visit you in his wrath. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them. They see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And as we look back again from this New Testament fulfillment, it is clear that this is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And yet the prophet wonders as he personifies the nation of Israel, even as these kings have had their mouths shut and are seeing what this is, the reality of this true to come prophecy, the the, the the grandness with which he presents this, now he says in Isaiah 53 and verse 1, but who has believed our report? Why has no one believed them regarding this servant? The truth is, as you look over the, the warp and woof of the nation of Israel, many, many, many did not believe. And by the time you come to the incarnation of Christ, the belief is that the one who is grand and on high and should be Messiah cannot also be the suffering servant. That is the reason for disbelief. No one believed that the strong arm of the Lord could also be a suffering servant. And this is what the author goes on to describe here. The reality is, according to Paul in Romans 11, even as we speak of Israel's disbelief here, that a fullness, a a, a great number of Israel will someday look back and see what she missed in Isaiah chapter 53. And that seems to be the standpoint here. A looking back to see that Messiah was in some senses missed as we think of it from our perspective. And we even get a little bit of a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 2, do we not? As Peter is preaching to uh, those Jews who have come from every nation. He says, essentially, men of Israel, by your hands you put to death the Lord of glory. You put to death God's Messiah, the eternal Son of God. And what do those, at least in that moment, say? They are cut to the heart and they say, what must we do to be saved? They recognize, as it were, who they missed in Isaiah chapter 53. And so now as we move ourselves back into the time period of Isaiah 53. Isaiah describes this unbelievable servant, the one who was from a future perspective missed, who is also God. One of the reasons it is incredible to think of this servant as God is his appearance. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Who has believed what he has heard from us about this this servant to come, this strong arm of the Lord? And to whom has the arm of the Lord Yahweh been revealed? How can this be? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And We think about these verses and we ask these questions about if this is Messiah who is also, as we understand uh, after Jesus comes, is also the eternal son of God, God cannot grow up, can he? It says that he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Or can he? Luke chapter two and verse fifty-two states, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the mystery of the incarnation: the God-Man, the Eternal Son of God, uh, eternally one with the Father in essence, comes as the Eternal Son. Puts on humanity, and is indeed a a, um, a baby inside the uterus of a virgin, who is born into the world, who does grow up. Of this concept, the great Puritan theologian John Owen writes, The Lord Christ as man did and was to exercise all grace by rational faculties and powers of his soul, his understanding, will, and affections, for he acted grace as a man. His divine nature was not unto him in the place of a soul, nor did the divine nature immediately operate the things which he performed, as some of uh, old vainly imagined. Uh, That's called Apollinarianism. If you want a big word to throw around. But being a perfect man, his rational soul was in him the immediate principle of all his moral operations, even as ours are in us. He lived and experienced life truly as a human, though at the same time mysteriously truly God, eternally Christ's growth in grace and wisdom was the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit, for as the faculties of his mind were enlarged by degrees and strengthened, so the Holy Spirit filled them up with grace for actual obedience. So says John Owen. Commenting on Owen, Mark Jones states, Christ's divine nature did not act immediately upon him during his life on earth. Instead, the divine nature operated upon his human nature immediately by the Holy Spirit, who enabled him to exercise the rational faculties that were proper to his human nature. And in in, in there lies the mystery of how God can put on humanity and, and grow Part of the humiliation of Jesus becoming the God-man was the need for his human nature to grow in wisdom and stature. This was part of the miracle of the incarnation of Christ's coming, of him taking on humanity. And then we read these words, how can God not also be majestic and beautiful? Again, we appeal to the biblical understanding of the incarnation and Christ's humility. It says he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing that stood out about him in his appearance that would make people say, hey, look, there's someone special or, 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 or there's someone beautiful. Or look, there is the Son of God. How can God grow? How can God not be beautiful? How could God be a man who is acquainted with sorrow and grief and, and all of these things? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It was necessary that the one who would stand in the place of sinners understand their plight Yet without sin. We studied Hebrews together a few years ago. There are many places in Hebrews where this idea is addressed, but um, uh, listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. You can turn there if you'd like, you don't have to. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Offspring of Abraham, keep that word offspring, seed in mind. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to, to, to bear the wrath, to, to make sure that justice was done in regard to sins for the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He had to be made like his brothers. What a fullness of Israel will one day look back and wonder how they missed. We celebrate in the coming of Jesus at his advent. And we have seen these things play out even as we've been studying the gospel of John together. And we know that this is exactly what happened in the life of our Lord In this, though, should not be sorrow. For in this is hope, which leads us to our second aspect this morning. He was stricken. First, he was not esteemed, but secondly, He was stricken in verses 4 through 6. Though the title of this point seems discouraging, in it is hope indeed. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. If there was no esteem in the last of, of, of his character and of his beauty, here is how we esteemed him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Even though we have esteemed him as stricken. We are the ones who have sinned. Every one to his own way. And the Lord Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As a prophecy in some ways, which seems to have a two-part fulfillment in that it is fulfilled in space and time by Christ himself, but also in the sense that Israel will uh, one day, uh, 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 a fullness of Israel will one day look and repent. We see the mission of the suffering servant clearly. Notice the past tense of these statements here. In space and time, those who put Jesus to death really did so. It really happened. This, however, was the point of the plan of God. Notice the work that is done. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. And his wounds have brought us healing. And we have to understand that in some sense as spiritual healing because we still feel the physical effects of needing healing. And that's why our bodies are going to be redeemed one day but uh, we understand this in regard to our reconciliation to god and this is we see things like second corinthians 5:21 where god made him jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of god in him the understanding of what we are and what we what uh, who he is is seen here We put Jesus on the cross and he bore all the sins of those who were wandering sheep. He has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we have esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In the moment of that, it was Israel and the Gentiles and the the, the Roman leaders and and the religious leaders who did it. But in our hearts, before we... Place our faith and trust in Christ, it is us as well. Looking to Jesus and mocking him. All the while, we are the ones who placed him upon the cross because of our sin. Though no, we know as well that it is the Lord who planned this, and we'll look at that in a moment. He bore all the sin of those who are wandering sheep. We need to be careful to remember the reason he came and why we celebrate his coming. It's from the cradle to the cross, is it not? Again, Philippians 2 and 5 forward reminds us of the glories of heaven which he left in order to humbly come and give his life for the glory of the Father and the salvation of many. But this is not the totality of our understanding of the events of the incarnation. We see thirdly, he was oppressed. If verses 4 through 6 tells us of what he did, verses 7 through 9 tell us how it happened. Look at them again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Uh, thoughts of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9 come in here as the one who was cut off. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here we See the details of the crucifixion. Again, looking forward from the time of Isaiah and now looking back as we have seen these events fulfilled. Let as a lamb before the slaughter. Here we see the language of the Passover. Uh, even as uh, Jesus is having that final supper with his men right before the, or, or, or at the time of the Passover. And then he is put upon the cross. The Passover, the pastoral lamb, was the sacrifice slaughter and remembrance of the exodus. So too Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, is a lamb who is led to the slaughter to, to open the exodus from slavery of sin and death. Jesus did not fight against this, but knew this was the plan that must be fulfilled. He was not silent, or, or he was silent, I'm sorry. Not uh, uh, Now, this does not mean that he... Did not speak, but that which he spoke was only affirming truth. Listen to Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. In these false accusations, Jesus was put to death and his grave was, uh, as it was, was made among the wicked and the rich. With the wicked implying that he himself was not wicked. And and with the wicked as he hung between two true criminals and he himself, as even Pilate says, "I, I cannot find anything wrong with this man. And he washes his hands. And then with the rich, as we know, the grave that was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. And again, we see emphasize the innocence of the one who was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Why is he hanging between two criminals when he has done no wickedness at all? The only thing he spoke was truth. Truth. And when they accused him falsely, he stood silently. There was no deceit in his mouth. Why was he buried with the wicked and even among the rich? Not only this, we see fourthly, he was crushed. He was crushed. Verses 10 through 12. And the word that is so vital here in verse 10 is he was crushed. Yet it was the will of the Lord Yahweh to crush him. The word here in the Hebrew is probably better translated as some of you have it. Um, and it is here in the um, the ESV. It, it pleased him to crush him. It, it says that um, later on, I believe, the pleasure of... Is in the the accomplishment of the will, and that it was. uh, That is why some translations read it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The pleasure is in the fulfillment of the plan. It's. It is not as if God is some uh, wicked father. No, He is a good father. It pleases Him to crush the Son, not because of the Son's being crushed, but because of the reason for that, which is the fulfillment of of the Trinitarian plan. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will Notice that twice now, according to his purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This is is Paul, in, in a sense, reflecting on Isaiah 53 and saying, this is what happened, this is the plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then it goes on to say, which was according to the counsel of his will. think of the reason for the need of the son to be crushed and we think of the seed promise of the garden that comes in the curse to the serpent after mankind has sinned uh, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake and only after the serpent bruised the heel of the seed it was because of our sin that the son must be crushed but it is only his heel which is bruised Look at it again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his what? Offspring. Think of the seed promise in the garden. The seed of the woman, it can be taken in two senses. It can be taken in the sense of an individual who would come to to crush the head of the serpent. But It can also be taken in the sense that there is that righteous seed, those who would truly be the children of God, the children of Abraham, by way of faith, not just by way of flesh. And that offspring, those righteous ones as they are called, in verse 11, are His offspring. He shall prolong His days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. It is only in a sense that His Heel is crushed, which in this is the accomplishment not only of the plan of God in regard to sin, but also exaltation of the servant. He did not stay in the grave, but his days have been prolonged. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That is the idea of imputation. He shall give them his righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. As we read in Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we think about the coming of Jesus at this time of year, we must remember the reason for which he came. It is not to only celebrate a baby born, but the purpose for which he was born. Did I forget to give you the last point? No, we got it. He was crushed, right? Yeah. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Believer, are you captured by this reality, not only this time of year, but all through the year? Our existence is for the glory of God and Christ by the Spirit. And we are to, in our assembly, point our brothers and sisters to this and... and Indeed, hope that they would point us to this reality. And we are to point non-believers as well to Jesus Christ. To so those who are suffering, we point to the one who in all ways suffered in our behalf. There is no other name and there is no other way. It's possible that in our midst this morning, there are those who are struggling with life. This time of year is joyful for many, but it's difficult for others as well. All sorts of hurts and questions about the way God works. They believe, but they need help in their unbelief. Would, would you be willing to come alongside of someone like that? Or if that is you, would you reach out to a trusted friend, to one of us as your pastors, and let us walk with you through that? Perhaps there are some in our midst who know that they have not repented, have not turned from their sins and trusted in the God-man, the one who has left the glories of heaven to take on flesh, to suffer in all ways as a human yet without sin, to be the perfect sacrifice who died on a cross, who was raised again, who was exalted, sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. He's coming again. That is you. If you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, please, I ask you to come and talk with me. Would you pray with me, and then we will partake in the Lord's Supper together. This morning, Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity to open your word and to study together. Lord, our desire is not simply for some sort of head knowledge some sort of theological understanding, though that is part of seeking to know who you are. But in that, Lord, in anything that we acquire, we recognize that it's your Holy Spirit who illuminates our eyes and our minds to these understandings for the purpose of your glory, for the purpose of worship, not only in singing and gathering, but in the way in which we live our lives. So, Lord, would you help us this morning to... To glory in your coming and the reason for your coming. And then, Lord, as we find ourselves in community seeking to encourage one another to remind each other of these truths and be encouraged to walk with each other, to proclaim the good news to our family that does not know you, to our friends that do not know you. Lord, especially in this time of year where questions may be raised, give us boldness, give us grace. And now, Lord, as we come to the table, pray that you would attend our time by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.